0: Let's uh, continue on in our series. I'm glad to have all of our guests and visitors here, and glad to see those that have been away for a little while uh, coming back, and uh, good to see your faces again. We want to turn to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, and we'll continue with um, um, a little bit of a review, <coughs> and then we want to look at the life of uh, Elkanah and Hannah and how that fits into this overall picture that we've been looking at with respect to Saul, David, and the kingdom. When we first began this study, we made comments about the condition of Israel at this time. And we talked, actually we went all the way back to God's calling out of Israel, out of the wilderness, or out of Egypt rather, to the wilderness and their wanderings and their progression onto the land of Canaan. We talked about the tabernacle and the purpose for it and God's dwelling place amongst his people. And from that point on, it seemed like there was victory and defeat, victory and defeat. But each time there was victory, the defeat just took them a little bit lower. And there was departure from the Lord. Uh, The nation as a whole departed, uh, particularly, though, the leadership, the uh, priesthood and the, those who were um, in positions of responsibility over the nation. And we saw a declension spiritually taking place throughout the nation, throughout the period of the judges, and then over into the, to Samuel. And we looked at the life of uh, Eli and his two sons, and Samuel and his sons, and took note of one of the reasons why God raised up a king uh, to begin with, or raised up a prophet, I should say, in Samuel, and then ultimately the kings, uh, is because of Israel's rejection of him. They rejected him as being their king and as being their spiritual leader. And so these were very dark days for the nation. Uh, These would have been the dark ages for Israel. And this declension brought about a need. And so what I want us to see here, first of all, with Elkanah and Hannah and beginning this, you know, in the leading part of this book, the opening chapter of this book uh, tells us about a young couple who had a heart for God. And they were desirous of, of worshiping God and being true to his word. And so in obedience, you know, they would go to Shiloh yearly to offer sacrifice to the Lord. Now you know the whole story is set up here for us in this opening uh, the opening few verses here uh telling us about Alcana, his background they tell us where he lived uh in in the town of Rama although in verse 1 it says Ramathaim Zophim uh of Mount Ephraim that was uh up in the northern part on the uh on the eastern side of the um, of uh, uh, the Jordan River. And uh, they would travel down to Shiloh yearly, he and his two wives. And as customary as we've seen in, in the Scriptures many, many times, uh, the confusion and the problems that arise when you've got two wives. There's enough problems, you know, with one. Uh, and, and I can't imagine two husbands, that'd be even worse. <laughs> uh but, you know, you look at the life, what took place in the life of Abraham with Hagar and with Sarah, and, and Jacob's life with uh, Rachel and Leah. And then in the book of Gideon, Judges, we find Gideon. It says there he had many wives and he had 30 sons. We look at uh, Jer, uh, it says there he had uh, 30 sons. Or, excuse me, Gideon had 70 sons. Jair had 30 sons, so... We it doesn't say how many wives he had. We just assume that not one lady was going to bear all those children to him, um, and there was conflict and problems associated with that all the way through. Even after this period of time, when you come to the life of David, you know David. David had several wives. He had Michael. He had Abigail. He had uh, Ahinoam and Maacah and Haggith and Abital and Egla. Those were all named wives that David had that we know about. And we know about the problems he had in in his family. And And of course he even went outside even outside those wives and brought trouble upon his own family. So even though it was allowed in certain cases it was always a problem. And it was no different here. Peninnah and Hannah. And As is true in most of these situations, um, the husband loved one wife a little more than the other one, which would only be natural. Since God ordained that we were to have one wife anyway, you would expect that one person would receive the greater amount of devotion. In this particular case, it was Hannah. But as you might expect, to add drama to the story here, Peninnah had children and the one whom Elkanah favored Hannah had no children and so the one with children looked down upon the one without the children <clears throat> and yet it's Hannah the one without children who represents the one with faith the righteous person who lives by faith and Peninnah just the opposite and she scorned and looked down upon Hannah because of her situation her condition You see, in actual fact, Peninnah looked upon Hannah as not having the favor of God and not having the blessing of God because she did have children. And Hannah didn't. And yet we find here God having his hand upon Hannah for a purpose and for a reason. And so, consequently, uh, Elkanah, in verse 5, said, would give each year a worthy portion. Now, he gave portions unto Peninnah, but to Hannah he gave a worthy portion, or more accurately, a double portion. He gave twice the amount to her as he gave to Peninnah, as an expression of his devotion to her and how much he loved her and cared for her. But that did not take care of the anguish that was in her heart. And she pled with God for a son. And she ached in her heart for a son. But it's interesting that... Uh, uh, Elkanah tries to appease her by saying, um, Am I not better to thee than ten sons? <laughs> I mean, I'm better. To, if you had ten sons, if you had an extremely large family, is not my love better than that? He was devoted to her and cared for her, but she ached and yearned for a son. And I think my opinion and understanding here is that this is all designed by God. God knew this, that, uh, God knew and understood the reasons for Israel's decline and their departure from Him. He understood the problems in the priesthood, that there was no one really serving in the priesthood who could stand for God, who took a stand for God, and who operated and functioned in the priesthood as He desired them to. So consequently, as a result, He brings Hannah and Elkanah on the scene. And through this burden and this conflict with Peninnah and Hannah and her desire to have a son, God answers her prayer. And so she says there in verse 11, as she began to pray, well, it says in verse 10, she wept sore. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me. Remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. Now look down at verse 19. And they rose up in the morning early, and worshipped before the Lord, and returned, and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah, Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. She prayed in verse 11, Lord, remember me. And in verse 19, the Lord remembered her and provided not only the burden and anguish of of, of a, a, a woman for a boy, a son, a child. But he also provided something for the nation of Israel. Because God was going to raise up a man here who would stand in the stead of those who were not properly Serving him. And so, what we see here then is that in the established priesthood that God had raised up to assume their spiritual responsibilities of the nation, and they had fallen away, where was God going to get any leadership? Where was God going to find that spiritual man who would provide leadership for the nation? And so, in their moral and spiritual decline, God moves outside his ordained program, and brings up a man by the name of Samuel. Now, earlier, God had made provision for this. Back in the book of um, Leviticus, no, Numbers, book of Numbers, we find that God made provision for just such a time as this. Knowing the nature of man... And knowing our propensity to leave God and forsake Him and to turn from His ways, God made provision. Now let's look at, let's look at Numbers chapter 6 for a moment and, and try to understand exactly what was happening here. Numbers chapter 6, <coughs> uh, the Lord made provision for individual people, individual men or women but particularly men here who could come to the Lord and make a vow. They could make a vow of devotion to the Lord. And there were certain stipulations that God set down with that. So we see in verse 1, Numbers chapter 6, verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink. Neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. He couldn't even eat a raisin. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree, from the kernels even to the husk. Now, And there's more. We'll come to that. Now, the very word Nazarite comes from the Hebrew word Nazar, which just means to separate. So that was the whole point of a Nazarite vow, was separation. This individual would come before uh, uh, the priest and make a commitment to the Lord of devotion to God. And he would separate himself from certain things for a specific purpose, and oftentimes for a specific period of time. It could be for a person's entire lifetime, as we see in the case of Samuel. When we return to that passage, we'll see that Samuel's dedication was for his whole life. But others, we'll see later on, did so on a temporary basis. It didn't have to be for a lifetime. It could be for a certain period of time that you devoted yourself to the Lord and separated yourself Uh, for a a spiritual renewal or spiritual purpose in your heart and in your own life before God. So we found, first of all, one of the requirements here then (coughs) was no drink, no strong drink, nothing of the fruit of the vine, not even raisins or, or not even, it says, matter of fact, you couldn't even eat the grape, not even moist grapes or even the dried grape, the raisin. That was just some, a part of the vow. Well, the fruit of the vine represents that which is the, the bounty of the earth. It represents that which is of the earth and earthly. And so what this Nazarite would do, would he would devote himself to separating himself from anything that associated himself with worldly things. Things that were tied to this earth. Then we find, verse 5, All the days of the vow of his separation, there shall be no razor come upon his head until the days be fulfilled. Alright, so no razor would come upon his head. Now over in verse uh, 11, when uh, Hannah was making her vow to the Lord that if God would provide a man-child for her, this is what she would do. And there would be no razor come upon his head. So she was making a Nazarite vow on behalf of this child that God would provide for her in answer to her prayer Samuel's was for a lifetime but you see here it says no razor shall come upon his head until the days be fulfilled in other words it was more natural and common to make a temporary vow and it would last for several days or weeks or months or whatever at the end of that vow then what would they do how would they show the vow was over shave the head Take all that hair off. There would be, and, and that would bring to an end or terminate the vowel period. So he says there, "...in the which he separated himself unto the Lord, he shall be holy, and shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow. All the days that he separates himself unto the Lord, he shall come at no dead body. He shall not make himself unclean for his father, or for his mother, for his brother, or for his sister." When they die because the consecration of God is upon his head. So we see another thing connected here with this matter of the hair growing upon his head and becoming excessively long. It was a sign to all those about him concerning this vow and his his separation. And that he was submitting to God as his head and his head alone apart from the rest of the nation. It was an individual matter. Kind of reminds you of Revelation 3.20, doesn't it? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will come unto me and, and, uh, I will come unto him and sup with him and he with me. And if you understand the context of that passage, you know, here's God, uh, giving an invitation, His Son, Jesus Christ, giving an invitation to an apostate church. A church that had gone into decline. It was poor and wretched and blind and naked and in misery. And they didn't even know it. And yet for that one astute person who could perceive with the spiritual eye the condition of the church and desired to know God and to have fellowship with him, he said, if that person will just knock, I will come into him and he shall come and, have, and, and fellowship with me and sup with me. It also reminds me of the message of John the Baptist and Jesus. You know, when John the Baptist came preaching to the nation of Israel and the people, when he said, repent, and they were going out in the wilderness to be baptized of John, that was a picture of John's message. He was calling upon the people to remove themselves from that wicked generation of the nation of Israel, which was apostate, and to submit themselves individually To the Lord apart from the nation. And it was the same message that Jesus was proclaiming. The nation was sorely in decline, had rejected the Lord, and quite frankly, as we see later in the life of Jesus, had rejected him as well and wanted no part of God's Messiah. But God, in a dark period of the nation of Israel's life, raised up Samuel. Through a very devoted couple who had a heart for the Lord. And so in this in this matter of this vow then it was a very serious thing and it, I, what I want us to see here is you know the picture of this vow, the total dedication of that individual's life to the Lord. And so here Hannah had vowed this vow that she would do so for the Lord and she would devote him to the Lord all the days of his life. It was going to be a, a permanent, Uh, consecration on the life of Samuel. It would be for a lifetime. Now, um, let's look at um, where we're going to go from here. Look at verse 9. Excuse me, verse uh, 28. She says there, Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord as long as he liveth he shall be lent to the Lord. Well, we see bound up in this verse also this lifetime commitment that he would be lent to the Lord. Not lent in the idea of uh, loaned, you know, like you would make a loan request, but the idea that she had requested of God that this be so. And God fulfilled her wish. Matter of fact, it, you know, more literally, this could be says, This could be read here, Therefore also I have made him over to Jehovah. Made him over to Jehovah. I have given him over to Jehovah. This was a complete and total and costly sacrifice on the part of Hannah to give up her only child at this point in time and give him over totally to the Lord. So Hannah kept her vow that she had vowed to the Lord and she did this very thing. And so through that, God made this provision, even though the the condition of the nation was extremely, extremely low. As a matter of fact, if you just look, well, look at uh, in chapter 2 and verse 12. Notice, well, actually, let's back up to chapter 1 for a second. I want you to just notice how God throws things in here for us. To put everything in perspective, look in verse 3. Down in the middle of the verse, it says... And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. That's the only comment he makes at that point. But when you come over to verse 11 and 12 in chapter 2, it says, And Elkanah went to Ramah to his house, and the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial, and they knew not the Lord. Sons of Belial... to be a son of Belial the very word Belial itself just means to be without any profit or value some translations say they were worthless men that is worthless to God you see they were not fulfilling their priestly function and so as far as God was concerned they were totally worthless now it's interesting you know that that Samuel's first perception of Hannah was also that way. He thought she was a worthless woman. Because when she came to pray before the Lord, he saw her there and thought she was drunk. Because she was just praying before the Lord, but not speaking out loud, moving her lips. And so, she says in verse 16 of chapter 1, Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial. So you could be a daughter of Belial, you could be a son of Belial. In either case, you were considered a worthless person. But then, when she explained herself to Eli, Eli understood the situation. And as she told him why she was there praying, you know, it says there, um, Eli answered her and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. And so when uh, the, the man who was in the position of responsibility as a priest, Eli, when uh, she she made told him why she was there, and she, she she excuse me he commended her for what she was asking, and then he gives her this word of encouragement: "May God grant you your petition." Then Hannah went away encouraged, because prior to that it said she wouldn't even eat; she was in such vexation over this thing. It was so affecting her spiritually that it affected her emotionally and in her body. And she just wouldn't even eat. But then, once that she had received encouragement from Eli, then it says she went her way and did eat and her countenance was no more sad. So she recovered from that simply based upon Eli's uh, assurance to her that God was going to answer her prayer. And several months later, God did that very thing. So she lent him to the Lord. Now, let's come back here for a moment then, and let's look now at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And I want to look at now the rest of the time here, this prayer that Hannah made before the Lord. And the reason I'm coming back now to focus upon this, after having looked at, the things that we've looked at so far and the messages leading up to this and also in the lives of Samuel and the lives of, of David and, and those associated with these men is that you know God very purposefully opened this whole period of time, not just this book, but this period of time in Israel's history with a very unique situation because of Israel's rejection of him and their desire for a king like all the nations around them, and so in the midst of this, then we find this young couple, and in particularly, in particular here, Hannah, who was a woman full of faith and we, and and of and understanding. She understood what was going on spiritually and politically within the nation of Israel, and that's seen in this prayer that she prays here. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies, because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee. Neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and they that stumbled are girded with strength. They that were full have hired out themselves for bread, and they that were hungry seized. So that the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave, and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth, raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he hath set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness For by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. And he shall give strength unto his king. And exalt the horn of his anointed. And we might might want to note there that that word anointed is our word for Messiah. And that's the first time it's mentioned in scripture. At this point in time, I think very significant. Very significant in view of Hannah and her prayer, for one, and her faith, but also in view of the coming king that God was going to raise up, a man after God's own heart, and then the further king that would come in the future, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be the ultimate Messiah. Now, in this prayer, we'll just look at a few things here, a breakdown of this prayer. In, in the First of all, Hannah... Uh, Praise a prayer of thanksgiving and praise to God. Thanksgiving to God for who He is, that He is holy, that He is full of knowledge. And her heart, she says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. And Hannah understood she had gained a knowledge of, of the God of Israel, the God who had delivered them and revealed him, them, uh, Himself to them in the wilderness and in the building of the tabernacle, and in taking them into this land of promise that he had uh, promised he would take them to. Um, she says there um, in verse 1, My mouth is enlarged. <laughs> well, that's why we've got this thing right here. Not quite big enough to get on it, but I could come close. What did Hannah mean? Her mouth is enlarged. Well, let's don't forget about Peninnah. Don't forget the one who was so outspoken against Hannah. Because now, now that God has operated in her life and brought answers to her prayer, now Hannah becomes very bold. I mean, it's, it's no different than you and I. When God works in our lives and God answers our prayers... I mean, it stirs you up. It gets you excited. You want to go tell everybody how about how God answered your prayer. Well, basically, that's what Hannah's doing here. Her mouth was enlarged in meaning; she became bold in speech. She was not willing to hold. She didn't. She wasn't afraid to hold anything back. She wanted to let it all come out right now. And in, but it was not an uncontrolled thing. She prayed with purpose. She prayed with knowledge. She prayed with understanding. She knew who the God of Israel was, who Jehovah was, and so she says, "There's none holy as the Lord." Now, isn't that how God revealed Himself to Israel? Be ye holy, for I am holy. She understood those things. Verses three and four, she takes on Peninnah in essence. She talks about the proud and the arrogant. But you see, we see that revealed later on also in the book of Samuel, with, with, particularly with King Saul. Talk no more, so exceeding proudly, and let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. Wow, look over in Proverbs chapter 16 for a moment, verse 2. Proverbs, we're going to look at a few verses here now, so you might as well keep your finger there in in, uh, 1 Samuel 2, because we'll be flipping back and forth several times. In Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 2, it tells us there, All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirits. The Lord is the one who is the judge. And we may look within ourselves and think we're pretty good or we're doing okay, but it's the Lord who's going to weigh the spirits and determine the ultimate outcome. Look, Turn over just a few pages to chapter 24 and verse 12. In chapter 24 and verse 12, uh, Solomon tells us there, If thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth not he know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? He will render to each accordingly. And so for us to try to cover it up by saying, hey, I didn't know, is not going to be sufficient because the Lord knows. And he knows the true condition of our heart. Then in verses 4 four through 8, he basically here in verses 4 through 8, he makes a comparison, she makes a comparison. Uh, Hannah does, between the high and the lofty as as opposed to those who are the low and the humble. The humble person. And so let's just look at that for a moment. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty men are broken, and they that stumbled are girded with strength. Well, that's an interesting contrast. The bows of the mighty men are broken. Of course, for a person who had a bow, he was a mighty warrior and it was a good aim, you know, that gave him a certain amount of confidence, a certain degree of maybe even pride. Let's look over at um, Psalm 37 for a second. Psalm 37 and verse 15, and then we're also going to look at Psalm 18. So Psalm 37 and verse 15, and then also you might want to put your finger on Psalm 18. Now in, in the 37th Psalm, the 15th verse, it says there, their sword shall enter into their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Now, when I read that verse, and I think of the book of Samuel, I know of one person there, particularly mentioned, where a sword went into a man's heart, and that was King Saul, who fell on his own sword and he was also a very lofty person and an arrogant person a prideful person a prideful person who sought with all of his might to defend and keep the power that he had knowing full well that David was the man that God had anointed and he was the man that he wanted to be king and David or Saul knew that his well even, he even confessed ultimately to David, you know, he says, now I know that the kingdom is yours. And yet Saul, and he and he'd promised over and over, I won't try to hurt you, I won't try to kill you, David. And then the next thing we find, he's out there hunting Saul, uh, David down again, trying to kill him. Trying to preserve and protect power. Yes, he was a proud man. And he sought to keep it with all of his strength. Look at chapter eighteen, Psalm eighteen, and thirty uh, ninth verse. Psalm eighteen and verse thirty nine. There it says, "For thou hast girded me with strength unto the battle; thou hast subdued under me those that rose up against me." And by the way, what makes this verse interesting and important is you have to go back to the heading. Of this Psalm. So let's look at that. The heading of Psalm eighteen says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David. Well, that's important to know. This is one of David's Psalms, the servant of the Lord, who spoke unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies, and from the hand of Saul. And he said, okay, I, you know, it was hard for me to imagine. The trauma of going through somebody trying to hunt you down and kill you and then being able to turn right around and compose a song. A song such as this one that was a song from the heart towards God. Thanksgiving to God for delivering Him from His enemies. So in view of that, David says in verse 39, Thou hast girded me with strength unto the battle. Thou hast subdued under under me those that rose up against me. Well, who do you think he was talking about? Was it Saul and his men? I would rather think so in view of the title of this psalm. You see, God, knowing that He had chosen David because of David's heart, had prepared him for battle. Had given him the strength to go out into battle and to do the mighty things that He did. And you know, He'll do that for you and I. He will go out and fight our battles for us. It's not just a Uh, some pithy saying that we like to say, oh, the Lord will fight your battles. But He will. He will do what He says. He will do what He did for David. He'll do for you. He'll do for me. But we must be as David was. We must have a heart that is after the Lord. We must have a heart that is seeking after Him. You see, and God will protect that one. He will minister to that one. He will strengthen that one. And He will fight that one's battles. And give them the victory. Now we see back in Second 1 Samuel chapter 2 again. In verse 5. They that were full have hired out themselves for bread. And they that were hungry seized. So that the barren hath borne seven. And she that hath many children is waxed feeble. Wow. What a contrast there. Look at Proverbs chapter 16 for a moment. Proverbs chapter 16 and then we're also going to look at another proverb here, Proverbs uh, 18. So Proverbs chapter 16 and verse uh, 18. Proverbs 16:18. it says, Pride goeth before destruction, and in haughty spirit before a fall. Well, that's a verse we're well familiar with. Look over in chapter 18 and verse 12. Before destruction the heart of a man is haughty, and before honor is humility. And that verse tells us what the source is of our haughtiness. It begins in the heart. The heart of man is haughty, and it leads to destruction. It's no wonder that God honored David and blessed David the way he did, because he had a heart that was after God, that sought after God, and and loved the Lord. And so because of that, the Lord was willing to uh, minister to him and please him verse 6 it says the lord killeth and maketh alive he bringeth down to the grave or to sheol and bringeth up and the lord maketh poor and maketh rich he bringeth low and lifteth up here we have again this this contrast between the great and the mighty and those are that are low and small you know God you know the scriptures many times over, and someday I want to do a study and a message on this. God uses these words over and over uh, this, the the the, uh, the great and the small, the great and the small, and he contrasts those and he, he means not great in size, obviously, but those who are in positions of authority, those who may have other things around them that give them uh, respectability or power or strength, it might be their speaking ability, it might be their family relationships, it might be their position in society, or their wealth, or their, their kind of job they hold down, or whatever it might be. The great ones, that as it were, of this earth, of this world, of the world system, as opposed to the small and the lowly what we, you and I would term amongst us here, the common man, the everyday man, the workaday man, the guy that wears a blue collar and goes to work every day. And so he contrasts those, the high, the lifted up, and then the lowly. And yet Hannah here says it's God is the one who raises up. God is the one who brings down. And not only does he do that, but it says there, the Lord makes poor. That is, he takes those who are high and lofty and brings them down. And then those, he says, are low, he lifts them up. He raises them up. Look back at Deuteronomy chapter 8 for a second. There's a, well, maybe, maybe more than just a second. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 18 it's a verse that was pointed out to me many years ago by someone a, a former pastor of mine and it's, I don't know why I've just never forgotten that verse but in Deuteronomy chapter 18 or excuse me chapter 8 I'm sorry and verse 18 Deuteronomy 818 and maybe you've seen this before but it says there but thou shalt remember the Lord thy God for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he sware unto thy fathers, as it is to this day. And even if you look at verse 17, And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of thine hand hath gotten me this wealth. Well, he says, guess what? You just better think again where your wealth comes from. Because that only comes from me. It is only in the hands of the Lord that he gives the power to gain wealth. Um, in in verse eight, and we're in, in connection with this. We're not going to leave this thought here. But back in in First uh, Samuel chapter two and verse eight, it says there again: He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill. Turn. Let's go over to um, see where Psalm one hundred and thirteen. Psalm 113, and a couple of verses there to look at. Verses 7 and 8. It's interesting too, I don't know how the Lord devised this one, but it matches verses 7 and 8 back here in chapter 2. But look at verse, Psalm 113, verses 7 and 8. He raises up the poor out of the dust... And lifteth the needy out of their dunghill of the dunghill, that he may set him with princes even with the princes of his people. Now did Hannah know the Bible, or didn't she not? I mean, this is a virtual quote from this psalm, but she knew the scriptures. And not only did she know the scriptures, she understood the implications behind those scriptures, that it is God who raises up the poor and puts them in places with princely people, with the great ones. But it's his doing. If you look there at the rest of verse 8, we didn't read it, it says, To set them amongst princes, and to make them inherit the throne of glory. I like those words right there. To make them inherit the throne of glory. Because that's the only way you ever receive a throne. That is the only way that you will ever be elevated to a place and position of power and authority is through inheritance. And inheritance comes about through your obedience and your relationship to the God of heaven. It comes about through your identification with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and your willingness to suffer with Him in order that you might co-inherit with Him. Or be a joint heir with him. And share in his glory. The future glory of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who the scriptures say will come and sit on the throne of his glory. In Matthew chapter 25 verse 31. And one day he will do that. And in order for you and I to share in that future glory. He will lift up the lowly. He will raise up the poor. And there's going to be a great exchange take place one day. When the wealthy are going to be brought low, and the poor are going to be lifted up. turn with me to James chapter two for just a moment. James chapter two. And let's look at something there that, that, that James said. and you know I was, James was an amazing uh, he, he had a great understanding of the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. and I've always I really admired that, him. Uh, James chapter two, verse five. And there it says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to them that love Him? Rich in faith. But He chose the poor to be rich in faith. Was Hannah rich in faith? Indeed she was. And was she poor? (laughs) Indeed she was. She was not amongst the leadership of Israel. She was not amongst the great ones and the wealthy and the mighty of Israel. She was amongst the poor and consequently an heir of the kingdom. Um, Let's look at a couple other things here before we move on. One I'm just going to mention in passing. In view of this, in view of this change that's going to take place at a point in time in the future between those that have and those that have not. I want you to go back and read the incident that the Lord gives with the the rich man and Lazarus. And watch what happens there in that, that, I hesitate to call it a story, but I don't want to call it a parable either. This account of the rich man and Lazarus and the transfer that takes place in the next life, beyond this one, between those two men. But I'll leave that for another time. You can go read that. Then finally, finally, back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, to finish up with uh, Hannah's prayer, in verses 9 and 10, Hannah now looks to the future. Hannah has gained a boldness and a confidence about the future. And so she says, "...he will keep the feet of his saints." Or as some translations say, his holy ones. God doesn't guard the feet of all. But he does guard the feet of his saints. The holy ones. Those who, like Samuel, have taken the initiative to set themselves apart and and be devoted to the Lord. And live a holy life. And that's a promise he's given that he will do that. But look what it says about the wicked. And the wicked shall be silent in darkness. What do you suppose that means? And who are these wicked here? Now I can tell you what I think, but I'm going to tell you something. This is very interesting. You know, this is a I have a I have a, a Bible here, like I suppose many of you, that has marginal references over here. And there's something in this Bible I would never ever have expected to see that is a reference to this this phrase here and the wicked shall be silent in darkness they reference Matthew chapter 8 verse 12 and i'm sure that some of you know what that says but the sons of the kingdom it says shall be cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth the wicked here you see are in contrast to the saintly those who are living saintly godly lives are the ones whose feet will be guarded. Just as he says in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, concerning the angels, there are all ministering spirits sent to minister unto them who are about to inherit inherit salvation. See, I, I, the more I look at this, the more impressed I am with Hannah's understanding of what God's program was and how pathetic Eli's was. And his sons, and how little they understood, how little Saul understood. And so he says, "For by strength shall no man prevail." Yeah, that is by man's own strength, but look at verse 10, where strength comes from. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces; out of heaven shall he thunder upon them." We find later on, right here in First in, uh, Samuel, I think it's in, or, uh, yeah I think it's in chapter seven. When they're out going against the Philistines, it said the Lord sends thunder from heaven in his bid to defeat the Philistines. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. We already saw in Proverbs they're going to be judged according to their works. God's going to judge all as he brings it to conclusion. Remember, Hannah's looking to the future here. And he shall give strength unto his king. They're not going to find strength in themselves. Strength of of man will not prevail. Hannah says in verse 9. But the Lord will give strength unto his king. And exalt the horn of his anointed. His chosen ones. He will establish them. He will put them in positions of authority. He will put them in positions of prominence. And all of the... um, grand, all of the royal kinds of things that go with being in such a profound position. And so I share those words with you this morning just to encourage you to say, hey, I want to keep on living by faith. I want to keep on believing the Scriptures. I want to keep on believing God's Word that what He did for Hannah, He will do for me. That if He's willing to go to bat for Hannah... God's willing to go to bat for me. If I will keep my heart devoted to Him, if I am passionate about serving His Son, Jesus Christ, and I'm living... doesn't say now. I'm not promising. I'm not telling you that God said you won't have any trials in your life. I said He will give you the victory. He will empower you to be an overcomer. And you can overcome and live a victorious life. You don't have to live your life as a beaten down, defeated Christian. We can be like Hannah. We can pray a prayer that is full, full of excitement, full of enthusiasm, full of joy. You can just, just, I can feel Hannah's heart pounding as she's praying this prayer. And yet she didn't pray unknowledgeably. She prayed knowing what she was praying about. And so should we. We need to know the Lord's Word. You know, it was interesting when when, the, uh, when Saul was killed and they beheaded him, and it says in the Scriptures there, the men of Jaboth-Gilead came down to take Saul's body and to bury it. And when they, when David's men told him about it, he said to those men, he said, May the Lord God of Israel, or words, I'm, I'm just making up my own words here, but words to this effect, May the Lord God of Israel show you kindness and Truth. Truth. You see, David brought truth to the nation of Israel. And that's why God chose him to serve in the position he did as king of Israel. Because he brought truth to the nation. Saul didn't do that. Eli didn't do that. The nation was in trouble. But God brought about a rescue, as it were, and he used this humble, faithful, believing couple, Elkanah and Hannah, to bring about a deliverance in Israel through a prophet by the name of Samuel. And may we be like him. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning for your wonderful goodness to us. Thank you for your word. And thank you for the the tremendous promises that you've given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you'll bless in a very special way here this morning for us, that we might be in this new year as we begin this New Sunday here, the first one in, in the year of 07, fully devoted to you, with hearts that are passionate for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And we'll sing a, a hymn of invitation if you have a need or a blessing or you want to come and pray or you'd like to come for any other reason to be baptized, to make a profession of faith, or to unite with this body of believers because you believe you believe what's taught from this pulpit, you believe what's in the Scriptures, and you say, this is where I want to be, then we want to invite you to come this morning. As we sing, 349. something this morning I've never done before in my life. And I'm privileged and honored to have the opportunity to do it. This morning, Alan and Janet Robertson and Andy and Susan Duke have asked to join our church. Do we have a motion to accept them as members? Any objections? If so, meet me in the field after the church. We'll settle this. Okay, if there's no objections, we'll accept them as members. Thank you.